If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, it's not just here in Alberta that we're talking about reopening or relaunching the economy uh, right across the country. Various provinces uh, are now laying out their various strategies. We're getting details on B.C.'s plan and Ontario's plan today. Uh, obviously, there's still some some issues around Alberta's plan, and I suspect we're going to talk a lot about it today, uh, that parts of this relaunch strategy for Calgary and also for, for Brooks are being delayed uh, by about 11 days. So May 25th is the uh, targeted now for Calgary and Brooks to be at uh, phase one of this relaunch strategy, or at least the aspects pertaining to uh, businesses like restaurants and cafes and uh, hair salons, etc. So like I said, we'll talk more about that. But right across the country, I mean, you know, a big part of being able to move forward is are we still able to stay on top of the virus? We're not reopening because of the virus has gone away. Hopefully we're reopening because we've we've used these last two months uh, to prepare for this. And a big part of that is testing. Now, it's certainly one area where Alberta has had a real strength uh, in the amount of testing we're able to do. Uh, but do we need to do more? I think certainly nationally, we're not doing enough testing. And and that's got to improve as we start to move forward here. Uh, because I think it's a way in which, you know, we can start to improve economic health while at the same time addressing public health. The two don't need to be in opposition. Uh, and it's to that end, there was an interesting piece in the uh, in McLean's magazine this week uh, from Goldie Hyder, who's president and CEO of the Business Council of Canada, uh, and uh, Dr. Isaac Bogotch, who's an infectious disease specialist, a physician and scientist with the University of Toronto, Toronto General Hospital. Uh, and it is the uh, latter who joins us on the line here this afternoon. Uh, Dr. Bogotch, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me back on. Um, so in terms of your thoughts on where we're at now with countries now making preparations for relaunching some provinces already having taken some of those steps, um, I mean, are, are we going too, too fast, too slow? Are we, have we got it just right, just, you know, the Goldilocks perfection here? What do you make of it all? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I think that, you know, some places are, are, are just right. And, you know, places like uh, Alberta, I think, have a pretty rational approach. I appreciate that. Uh, Calgary and Brooks might be a little bit behind the, the, the rest of the province because of their, their outbreaks, but certainly mm-hmm. elsewhere in the province, the risk is, you know, the risk of community transmission has gone down dramatically. So I, I think that's totally reasonable. You know, Ontario, where I'm sitting right now, uh, certainly is in not the same place as, as uh, Alberta. We still have about 300-ish new cases per day, but we're slowly going to reopen as well in the, in the coming days. And then you've got places like Quebec, which is, you know, they're having about 800 new cases per day, mainly yeah. clustered around the Montreal area. You know, you got to be careful in those situations because, you know, if you reopen too soon, you might not be set up for success and you might just have to clamp back down again, which doesn't do anyone any good. So I think timing is extremely important and there's certain places that are better timed to do this than others. 
And by the way, and I don't know, it, maybe there, there are geographical issues in, in, you know, looking at Montreal and, and say, New York. Uh, maybe there's a whole bunch of other factors, too. But do we know why it's been that much worse in Quebec and in Montreal in particular? It's hard to know. I mean, I, I'm totally speculating here. You know, yeah. I'd say the GTA, Greater Toronto Area, is also, we've got about 60% of the cases in Ontario. And, yeah. You know, the fact is, we're big cities. We, uh, you know, there's there's a ton of flights in and out of of the city, so we probably were able to import more cases. It might be reflective of our public health response up front as well. Certainly, there was some discussion too about uh, the timing of spring break across the country, and that might have negatively impacted us. Then there's policy decisions that may have been not as strong in in uh, in uh, Ontario and Quebec compared to the rest of the country. So it's probably mm-hmm. multifactorial. But uh, but at the end of the day, you know, Toronto and Montreal are certainly Montreal, especially, is, is just more negatively impacted compared to the rest of the country. All right. Let's talk about where testing fits into our strategy here moving forward and being able to to try to stay a step ahead of this virus. Why, why is testing so important to that? You can't control this epidemic if you don't know where it is, who's getting infected and what the patterns of infection are in a particular region. Testing is essential, and especially, especially as we enter this next phase where we're going to gradually uh, open up the economy and gradually lift the public health restrictions that we're living under. If we can't offer rapid diagnostic testing and rapid turnaround of these tests to people, we risk reintroducing the virus to places that don't necessarily have it. And then we risk not being able to rapidly identify that. And this, you know, a little fire can turn, can quickly burn out of control and, uh, and cause a much bigger problem. And the whole goal is to not have to regress and not have to go back. So if we have testing, and of course, you have to couple testing with contact tracing. You have to identify those positive cases and their close contacts and support people through a 14-day period of isolation. And if you can do that in a fast and effective and efficient manner, you're doing something right. And if you can't do it, you know, no one should be surprised that you, you, you head back to some major public health restrictions if there's outbreaks. Now, certainly we build up those capabilities, I mean, to varying degrees across the country, but I mean, we're better off than we were a couple of months ago. But how do we know when, you know, we're, we're at the right level? What is the ideal level of testing? I don't know. I, I, that's a million dollar question. I keep hear, hearing numbers thrown around. I'm, I'm not entirely sure that, you know, having a, a specific number is the right metric. I think ensuring that people who need a test can get a test right away and uh, is important. I think surveillance is important as well, which and, and laboratory surveillance. Like, we should be actively seeking out infection in places that we don't think have infection, and that takes lab capacity as well. Uh, but if we have surveillance mechanisms in place, if we have... Uh, like zero barriers to getting diagnostic testing in place, and we have the contact tracing bit in place, we'll be, we'll be able to, uh, to move forward more successfully. Look, there's going to be bumps on the road. Of course there are. Of course there are. But, uh, you know, the whole, the whole goal here is to not go back to square one and have to reclamp down like, like we did over the last couple of months. And as you point out, you know, some places in the country are much farther along than others. Like much of Alberta is ready to go. But like Montreal is is not uh you know new mm-hmm. brunswick is doing fantastic they have like zero to one cases per day in new brunswick i mean they're they're ready to go uh so you know it's different obviously in different places of the country yeah and i mean that's that's an interesting aspect i mean south korea is a good example of a country that was you know light years ahead of everybody it seems when it came to testing 
and if you, you can get it to a point where you don't have to do as much testing because you don't have as many cases, you don't have as many people presenting with symptoms and looking to get a test. So do, do you keep yeah. do you keep those tests in reserve or do you find other ways of making use of your capability? Do you randomly test people? I know this week uh, people in Calgary were given the opportunity that even if they were asymptomatic, if they wanted to get tested, they could. And I think we set aside about a thousand tests to allow for that. I mean, how do we deploy these resources? I love that. I mean, it's, Alberta really is, uh, I'm not just saying this because I'm talking to you and you're in Alberta, but <laughs> it really, Alberta has been really leading the way uh, on, on this. And, and, you know, we still need those resources. And I love that you brought up South Korea because, you know, over the, over the weekend, you know, of course we know so, South Korea had a rough go at the beginning of the epidemic. Mm-hmm. They had a lot of new cases very quickly that they rapidly quelled it. And they did this with some very innovative testing mechanisms and broad testing and broad uh, public health measures. And then as they started to lift their public health restrictions, they had uh, an outbreak. And this was related to people going to nightclubs. And uh, they basically clamped back down. So they have the sort of malleability in their system where they're able to uh, basically say, you know what, there's an unacceptable number of new cases. A, we're clamping down. B, we're testing everybody. And and they have a widespread testing campaign in South Korea to identify any possible contact or secondary cases of this of this uh, of this situation that they had. So you st- you certainly need that that capability uh, moving forward, and and you certainly need the capacity to be able to rapidly test lots of people if there is an outbreak setting. Uh, because if, you know if you want to, people I appreciate that you know this health crisis doesn't exist in isolation. Of course, it exists within economic realms, social realms, political realms, these are all closely intertwined. But if we really want to have economic progress and economic, um, you know, uh, benefits uh, moving forward, we have to ensure that we have strong uh, public health and strong access to diagnostic testing, which will, which will certainly facilitate it. It's not choosing one or the other. We choo- the, the right answer is choosing all of the above. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's interesting that South Korea story because on the one hand, the fact that nightclubs were open there is maybe an indication of, you know, where we can get to if we do it right. But then, you know, even the fact that nightclubs are open at all, I mean, it just seems so, so strange in this new reality that, that wow, yeah, I mean, it, it, it kind of boggles it the mind you a little bit. This thing? They're opening up uh, cruise ships too, right? Yeah, uh, Carnival yeah, Cruises is opening up in, in August. And you think, oh, who in their right mind is going on a cruise in the course of a, you know, a global pandemic? And then they reported that there was something like a 600 percent, you know, uh, demand for tickets. I'm thinking, God, we've seen this before. Like, we've seen this before and we've only seen it a few months ago. We know how this plays out. So you're right. It is a little surprising. But, uh, you know, this is the world we live in. And really, I mean, if we start to take a step back and think about what is our durable solution out of this mess that we're in, it, it really is in the hope that we can develop a vaccine. And, and fortunately, there's been some tremendous progress on that front, and I really think that's going to be our, our way out of this. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, in the meantime, as you say, test, trace, isolate, that's a big part of the strategy. And as we continue to not just ramp up our testing, but we see developments uh, when it comes to, to having more rapid testing available and maybe a situation where, you know, you don't have to send stuff off to a lab, you can get results uh, rather quickly. There are a lot of potential uses for that, maybe in, in certain industries, maybe when it comes to airline travel. Do, do you see sort of targeted uses going forward when it comes to testing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in all fairness, I'm pretty agnostic whether or not these are rapid tests at the point of contact or rapid tests at a public health lab 
that can mm-hmm. you know batch a million tests together at the same time. I, I'm pretty agnostic as long as whatever system you use gets results back in a meaningful time frame. What the, the clear thing here is, is it would, it's unacceptable if you have someone who's tested and then they wait you know days and days for them to get a positive or a negative test result back, and then you yeah. wait days and days to do the appropriate contact tracing because in that time frame. You know, even though the individual who might have been tested uh, is given instructions to isolate for 14 days, all those close contacts may be, uh, there may be some positive close contacts who may be unknowingly spreading the infection elsewhere. And, and you know, truly an army of contact tracers or a method to do this in a more efficient manner is is just essential. And the, I think the other thing, too, is it's so it rolls off the tongue so easily, right? You know, we can test, we can, we can trace, we can isolate. But I, I, the isolate part is also pretty tricky as well. And, you know, it's easy to say, okay, you know what, you need 14 days of isolation. But, you know, some people don't have a home to go to or some right. people uh, need support. They have a home to go to, but they have no way of getting essential resources like food, you know. So, so we, we really have to be thoughtful about, you know, how we're going to support people through the 14-day period of isolation and people that can't do that themselves. And, uh, and, and you know, not to, you know, hold hands and sing kumbaya, but we really are only as strong as our weakest link, especially with an epidemic like this. And it just it doesn't take much to reintroduce this into the community. So, you know, this is truly the time where we, we, we really have to watch out for those less fortunate than us because that, that impacts everybody. Also, it's, it's also the right thing to do. But, uh, yeah. but, you know, certainly we have to be very mindful of that moving forward. Right. And, and it's an interesting point because, you know, I mean, it's, it's certainly a higher risk to family members when somebody is a positive, but it's not necessarily inevitable that everyone in a household is going to get sick. But that does come down to a question of resources. If you have, uh, you know, a nice two-story home and uh, multiple bathrooms and it's easy for someone to call, okay, I'll be in the basement and I have a bedroom and a bathroom down here and I'm, I'm cut off from everybody – as opposed to, you know, a family that's, that's living in an apartment, you know, a family sharing Absolutely. a one-bedroom apartment, right? Absolutely. That and, and it, you know, I, I completely agree. In addition to that, you think about someone who's living in a homeless shelter or in a refugee yeah. shelter somewhere. I mean, these are all settings where uh, you may unknowingly transmit the infection to other people. And, uh, and uh, certainly people might be, there might be multiple family members, as you point out, in a, you know, a, a one-bedroom apartment, making, the, making it their way through the world the best they can. But, but that's, that's just a much higher risk of transmission under one roof. And, you know, if there's things we can do, strategies or policies we can have to help mitigate that, I'm all for it. I I certainly am. Uh, And just quickly, I want to get your take on on the question of serological testing, because uh, Health Canada did uh, this week approve the first uh, such test for Canada, which can provide us some valuable information, I think, at a population-based level. But what's your your sense of how important that is and and how we make use of that kind of testing? Oh, that's, I was really, Canada got it right. It was so nice to see. I mean, we look at the United States, they really loosened their restrictions. The FDA, they, the FDA, the regulatory body of the state, said, you know, okay, we're going to lower our standards or loosen our restrictions. And the United States was really flooded with a lot of these serologic tests. And, you know, some of them were okay, and some of them were of dubious quality at best. And what ended up happening was you couldn't make any sense of the results. You couldn't. You couldn't. I mean, the, the, you couldn't, if a positive test was, was available, was that a real positive? Was that a false positive? And it was so bad in the states that many public health bodies basically said, stop. We can't interpret these tests. Stop doing them. Uh, and Canada took the approach of saying, look, we don't know what's out there. There's a bunch of 
there might be some stuff on the market. There might be some crap on the market. Let's just hold our breath for a little bit. And it, it only took about six weeks or so. And then we saw the data emerge. We saw a strong horse emerge. And we, we picked the test that we thought was was ideal. And you know what? There's going to be other good tests as well that will likely be approved in Canada. These tests are great. They answer the question, have I ever been infected with COVID-19? Yes or no. They don't answer the question, do you actively have an infection? And there's a lot you can do with that. I mean, you could look at how communities are impacted. You can look at how communities are impacted with COVID-19 over time. You can answer, you have the tools to answer questions about you know, to what extent are people immune and for how long? You can use this to help drive vaccine research. Like, there's a lot of good that will come from these tests. It's, it's, it's excellent. It's a great, it's a really smart step and a big step in the right direction. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Dr. Bogach, appreciate your insight on all of this, and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Take care. Have a great day. You as well. Uh, Dr. Isaac Bogach, uh, infectious disease specialist, uh, physician and scientist with the University of Toronto and Toronto General Hospital. As mentioned, you can read uh, his piece with Goldie Hyder from the Business Council of Canada. It's up at mclean's.ca on uh, how testing, you know, making sure we're, we're doing an adequate job of testing is crucial then to allowing us to take these steps to, to try to get the economy back on track. I want to get to our next guest here and in a few issues I want to explore and I guess catch up with someone we haven't uh, spoke with uh, in a little while here. This is Paula Simons, uh, independent uh, senator for the great province of Alberta. Paula Simons, great to have you with us here today. How are you? Very nice to be back, Mr. Breckenridge. I'm I'm coping with this strange reality in which we exist. That's what I can say. Yes, I think that's true of all of us. So so in terms of uh, your, your job as a senator, I'm mean, now assuming you've you've not been in the nation's capital for, for a couple of months now. What is not, it, though, for, for your job, this, this job of being a senator? Well, it's been a very frustrating and complicated time. I haven't been back to Ottawa since uh, March 12th. There have been a couple, I guess, three now emergency sittings of the Senate since then, and there's another one tomorrow. What we've been asked to do is not to fly to Ottawa because that would sort of violate the best health advice, uh, which is to only travel in case of, you know, urgent need. So only the senators who can get to Ottawa via private car are encouraged to come. I mean, I have to say, Larry Campbell, who is a senator from Vancouver, uh, you know, the, the, the Da Vinci's inquest inspiration, uh, actually the first time drove from Vancouver to Ottawa with a trailer. But he did that once. You know, you, you can't go on doing that every two weeks. So uh, mostly we've had a very small sort of skeleton quorum of people in the chamber because these are, these are things that are just sort of getting passed on a pro forma basis. For the rest of us, um, I think a lot of my fellow senators, I mean, we tend to be, you know, workaholics who want to be in the thick of things. And so we're each trying in our own way to try and somehow contribute to, to Canada's response to COVID-19, and in my case, to Alberta's response to COVID-19. So, I mean, one of the things I've been doing, I've been calling out to mayors from across the province. I've been speaking to community leaders of all kinds, whether they're business community leaders from the energy sector, from the beef sector, from the not-for-profit sector, from the art sector, you know, trying to get a sense from people about how COVID has affected them and what kind of federal support they're looking for and what kind of federal asks they're going to have when the dust settles to, to pick us back up. So uh, I've been doing that and as, as much community outreach as possible, I've uh, I'm doing a forum for the YWCA in Calgary tonight, 
I, I even launched a podcast this week. So right. uh, yes. I've been trying to keep my hand in. Yeah, indeed, and I do want to talk about that. It just in terms of, though, as you say, to, to be reaching out to various um, you know groups and sectors of the economy, uh, and, and if you feel though that there's a need that okay, I, I need to make sure that I'm, I'm pressing the case here. The government needs to be aware of those concerns, as you say. There, there's a bit of a challenge now in being able to to pass that message on. So how do you, how do you go about doing so? How do you bridge that gap? Well, I mean, I as, as you know, and probably many of your listeners know, I spent 30 years before I became a politician as a journalist. So the one thing I know how to do is to call people up and ask them questions. So I've been calling out, doing what I would have done as a journalist, conducting interviews, making notes. And then I have been trying to get, you know, word to people in in Ottawa. Sometimes it's pretty straightforward. I spoke to the mayors of Jasper and Banff. They each have big problems because those are tourist economies uh, that are, have been devastated by the COVID lockdowns uh, and by the, you know, the, the end of passenger rail uh, in Western Canada. So uh, they have to pay rent to the federal government for the land on which they sit within their national parks. And so having spoken to both mayors, I drafted a letter which went to the Minister of the Environment and Parks Canada, uh, pleading with them to give rent forgiveness to Banff and Jasper. So sometimes it's something simple like that. Other things are more complicated. So I've been able to ask questions of ministers uh, in the Senate by getting, you know, sort of tag teaming with Senate colleagues to ask questions on my behalf. Uh, you know, so the first time uh, it was Senator Pierre Delfon who asked a question for me about supply chains and supply chain security to the United States. Uh, the next time it was Senator Chantal Petitclerc who asked a question on my behalf about support for post-secondary institutions and for municipalities. So, um, you know, the, the next time it was Marty Deacon, who's a senator from Toronto, and she uh, collaborated with me on a, a speech that she was giving. So, ooh, I'm suddenly getting a bad echo. Oh, really? I don't know. I get, I get to hear myself twice, and really, once is enough. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, I mean, you, you, you sound fine on, on our end, so I don't know how much of, of a distraction it is for you. All right. I'll, if you... No. Um, all right. We'll just, we'll just keep powering through. Okay. Uh, because I did want to ask you, and you mentioned you know, your previous work as a journalism, and, and you were almost back to doing that this week, because we learned this week, as a result of, of some of the phoning around you've been doing, that not only have we had a number of, of cases of, of uh, COVID-19 and people working in meatpacking plants, apparently now it turns out that a number of uh, CFIA food inspectors uh, have actually been, been infected as well. So how, how did this, this come out? Well, you know, as soon as I started hearing the news about what was happening at Cargill and JBS, I started making calls. So I spoke to the mayor of Brooks, I spoke to the mayor of High River, I spoke to the United Food and Commercial Workers, the Canadian Cattlemen's Association, to the feedlot operators. So I wanted to get a sense of just how this crisis was affecting the whole industry. And sort of to round out that circle, yesterday I spoke to the head of the union that represents the CFIA meat inspectors. And I was completely flabbergasted when he told me that 40 inspectors across the country have been infected with COVID-19. And that on top of that, 21 of those have been in Alberta, 18 at the Cargill plant in High River. So that's 18 out of 37 inspectors who work at the Cargill plant who fell ill with COVID-19. Now, 
I'm happy to say that unlike some of the of the uh, meatpacking workers who have died, none of the CFIA inspectors have died to this date, thank goodness. Uh, I mean, the deaths we have are quite bad enough without adding more. But one of those CFI inspectors was ill enough that they needed to be intubated and on a ventilator in hospital. So it's it's been pretty devastating. And for me, this raises a couple of really serious and important points. One is about the health and safety of the people that we are sending in on behalf of the federal government to inspect meat in federally inspected plants. But the other question becomes, if the inspectors are falling ill at that rate, who's inspecting the meat? Right. Uh, Because I want to be really clear about this, because there's no misunderstanding. COVID-19 is not a foodborne illness. There's absolutely no evidence that you can get COVID-19 from your steak or your hamburger. But there are a lot of other foodborne illnesses, and that's what the CFIA inspectors are there to look out for, for things like uh, listeria and E. coli or, you know, heavens forfend, another outbreak of bovine spongiform encephalopathy. That's why we have vets and inspectors in those plants. And if we can't fully staff with trained, experienced inspectors, that creates a whole problem potentially for the whole meat supply chain. It does. So how are they responding to this? Do we know? Well, that's an interesting question. So you asked, how do I get my questions across to Ottawa? I mean, I, I have submitted a long list of questions in writing to Agriculture Canada and the CFIA. And yesterday, because I sort of, I don't want to say I broke the story, but I sort of, I, I tweeted this, I tweeted this information out and it became a story. Uh, and one of my Senate colleagues, Ratna Omnidbar, who's a great senator from Toronto, was actually, in that very moment, taking part in the first ever virtual online committee meeting of the Senate Social Affairs Committee, which is helping to oversee COVID-19 response. And she texted me and she said, oh, my gosh, I've got the Agriculture Department right here. What do you want me to ask them? So I texted her, you please ask them this. And she did. So their response was, well, they didn't think it was 40 people. They thought maybe it was 38 people. Um, and then they said, well, you know, but the, all the inspectors were, you know, they have equipment and we're making sure that everything's fine. You know, I spent 30 years as a journalist hearing those kinds of answers and getting my backup. As a senator, my reaction is pretty much the same. I'm, I'm pushing for, for greater clarity and more answers, and uh, I'm not going to stand down until I get them. And uh, let's just uh, touch on, as you mentioned, uh, this, this interesting podcast you've got called Alberta Unbound, and sort of using this opportunity, I guess, to kind of tell different stories about Alberta and sort of explore, I guess, our, our identity as Albertans. So where, where did the idea for this come from? Well, the idea from this came because I was getting, frankly, tired of the national media obsession with only talking to the most extreme uh, separatist voices from Alberta and pretending that that was what all Albertans think. It's not what all Albertans think. It's not what all of your listeners think. And I thought, you know, I am a former journalist. What can I do to kind of push back and to do something a little more thoughtful? So back in the early part of March, March 5th, I had a whole panel that I put together at a theater in Edmonton. Uh, they included Shannon Stubbs, the federal conservative MP for Northeast uh, Alberta, the riding of Lakeland. Uh, Doug Griffiths, who was the former cabinet minister in the Prentice and Redford governments, and uh, the author of 13 Ways to Kill Your Community, which is about uh, rural renewal. Uh, Omar Mawalam, who's a fantastic freelance magazine writer and documentary maker. 
uh, grew up in northern Alberta and is now based in Edmonton. Uh, Diana Steinauer, who is the president of Yellowhead Tribal College and a Cree elder. And Jared Wesley, who's an amazing professor of political science at the University of Alberta. And I got them all on a stage for a live audience and asked them about who is a real Albertan? Who defines a real Albertan? What is Alberta identity? How do you feel when you see Albertans being pigeonholed in these stereotypical, you know, sort of uh, pigeonholes? Did mm-hmm. I just say pigeonhole twice? Yes, I did. In these, in, these, uh, in these really narrow definitions of what is, quote unquote, a real Albertan. And it was a great conversation and we recorded it and I thought, what a shame to let it go you know, not to waste because a hundred people heard it live, but how do you how do you get that out to a larger audience? So we've created a five episode podcast. Uh, it's on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Anybody wants to download it now, uh, and it's it's fun and I think provocative. And I was worried that it might be a bit stale because we recorded it just as COVID was coming over the horizon. But I think, frankly, it's more important now than ever with Alberta as devastated as we have been by the collapse of oil prices and COVID-19 to go back to first principles. What makes us Albertans? Is it more than our beef and our oil? What, what defines this place and how do we want to be seen by the rest of Canada? Much more at uh, SenatorPaulaSimons.ca. Paula, great uh, talking to you once again. Thanks so much for making some time for us here. Thank you. Always a pleasure. All the best. Uh, that is uh, Alberta Independent Senator Paula Simons. Uh, SenatorPaulaSimons.ca is her website. You can find that Alberta Unbound podcast there as well. plan going forward, it seems, is to encourage widespread uh, use of masks, wearing of masks. Uh, the Premier yesterday uh, said the non-medical mask program for Albertans is going to begin at the end of May. And that will see 40 million masks distributed to Albertans. Now, how that's going to work, how those will be distributed, it's not clear. And what is the expectation, though, for all of us when it comes to wearing and using those masks? I think part of the the challenge around this has been, I don't want to say conflicting, but maybe evolving public health messaging around masks and what we're expected to do, and what value they provide, and under what circumstances we're supposed to wear them. I think kind of strangely, there's this sort of weird debate happening, and I've seen it more so in in the U.S. than here, but this sort of almost like kind of resistance to wearing masks, like somehow it's a show of weakness or, or cowardice or something strange like that, and, you know, hopefully we don't see that here. I mean, I think there's certainly value in the wearing of masks because it can reduce the spread of the virus. And you're not wearing a mask to protect yourself. You're wearing a mask to try to minimize the risk that you'll infect others. Obviously, if you're sick, you're not out and about anyway. But the real risk and the challenge with this virus is, you know, the the potential, the possibility. We don't know how extensive it is, but certainly a big part of the story, uh, the spread by asymptomatic individuals. So uh, there's a lot of conversation about how this is all going to work going forward. Would it be helpful, though, if we were basically told to wear masks, that we didn't really have a choice in the first place? There was an interesting uh, op-ed in the Calgary Herald this week on how mask wearing should be mandatory. Uh, joining us uh, to talk more about it, uh, one of the authors uh, of that piece, Dr. Joe Vipond, is a, uh, an emergency room physician here in Calgary, also a clinical assistant professor at the University of Calgary. Dr. Vipond, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Oh. 
Thanks for having me, Rob. You've done such a good job with the introduction. I don't know if I can add anything. <laughs> well, let's find out. Nailed it. Uh, for, first of all, let's let's talk though about that public health messaging because it, I don't know. Is it inconsistent the right way to describe it? How do you describe it? Um, yeah, it has been wishy-washy, but I think you're right in saying that it has been improving as well. So, I mean, we started off by saying only people who have symptoms should be wearing masks. I mean, no, that's a little bit uh, odd because really should be staying at home. Um, they shouldn't be going out at all. Um, and then we went to, you could consider to think about the option of possibly deciding to wear masks or not. So it was, it was kind of like, okay, we'll, we'll reluctantly allow it. And now we're hearing stronger messaging that this is actually indeed recommended. And in Quebec, we've even heard the words strongly recommended. So things are, are evolving quickly. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of, of when and where it's appropriate to wear masks, and, and you know, part of the messaging has been, well, look, if you're, if you're six feet away from someone, it doesn't really matter anyway, and maybe masks are only useful in situations where it's harder to avoid people. I mean, does, does that still hold, or what, what do you make of that? I think that's pretty accurate. Um, we know that the spread is worse indoors than it is outdoors. We know it's easier to do when you're closer to somebody than when you're farther away from somebody. The reality is, is uh, a lot of times it's hard to, to keep that two-meter distancing, even if you're trying really hard. I'm sure mm-hmm. uh, most listeners may have been to the grocery store, and you're, you're doing your best to avoid people, and people walk right by you or right up to you, um, or you're on the bike path, and, and, and that happens as well. Um, so in reality, uh, we need to um, really make an effort to do it in any kind of situation where not only is it... Uh, uh, where it's really just hard to avoid that two-meter distancing. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the, the level of protection, I guess, or at least in terms of how it can impact the transmissibility of this virus, because obviously a cloth mask is not like an N95 kind of mask. Um, so it's, it's, it's not perfect, I guess, in preventing spread. But it, given what we know about droplets and how the disease is spread, it can certainly help. So what do we know about the extent to which masks can reduce uh, the spread of the virus? So we, we really are seeing people recommending cloth, homemade masks rather than medical masks at this point. And the main reason for that is we still have a supply problem in the hospitals for our healthcare workers, uh, hospitals and long-term care centers and, and other places where you know, it's really important to have that higher quality mask. And so we need to save those medical masks for those people. But cloth masks uh, do have utility. Um, so when you think about it, and I'm just going to spitball some, some numbers. Don't write these down. I uh, don't think that they're accurate. But an N95 would give you like 95 to 99% protection um, if you're wearing it and if it's well-fitted. Uh, a surgical mask, probably around 80%, and a, uh, um, a cloth mask, around 60%. So 60% isn't perfect, but it's, it's really good. And especially when you factor it in on a population level, that makes a huge change to the amount of transmission that's going on. Um, and, you know, if you are that three out of five people who wouldn't have gotten the disease uh, rather than would have got the disease had you not been wearing a mask, that's really important to you. There's not a lot of interventions in medicine that are that powerful. Well, and I read somewhere, and this was interesting, because, you know, we hear a lot about this R0 or R0, which is the infection rate. And if it's below one, that means, you know, that, that spread is being reduced. That if, if a mask is 60% effective, that if 60% of the people are wearing a 60% infection mask, uh, or a 60% effective mask, that might be enough to help keep the rate below one. 
Yeah, and that's probably the most important reason why mandating masks is there, is we need to get that level up above 60%. Rob, think about levels of defense, levels of safety as being different layers. So right now we have layers of stay in your home unless you have to go out. We have another layer in that stay two meters apart. We have another layer do copious hand washing. And we have another layer that we have government doing really excellent um, uh, testing and contact tracing. And so all of those levels are layers are in place and they're all protecting us and they're all dropping that our, our, uh, our not value. So what's going to happen now is we're actually slowly releasing one of those layers of defense. We are letting go of the that you must stay at home unless you absolutely have to go out. And one of the ways that we can improve um, that, that dropping of the r not is by adding that layer of masking. So the idea of, of mandating it, though, uh, how, how do you see that working? Because people are going to say, well, I don't have a mask, I don't know where to get one, or how to make one, and do I have to wear it if I'm driving in my car or just out by myself for, for a walk? So how do you see it or envision it working? Yeah, so there has to be clear, clear instructions to the populace, for sure. We need to know exactly in what situations the government wants us to be wearing that. And I'm not going to say exactly what situations those are, but we can probably imagine some. Uh, the, the reality is, uh, is there's 94 countries around the world that are already doing this. Places like South Korea, Czech Republic, Germany, France, Poland, Austria. Like these, these are all, you know, very countries similar to ours that have taken it upon themselves to do this. And it's working really well. So some of the things that have happened, like in the place, in like the Czech Republic, if there's been these amazing grassroots efforts of, of, um, of citizens who have just taken upon themselves to start making masks for everybody and and distributing them. Certainly, the government should play a role in supporting this. Um, but uh, and and people can make them at home uh, out of some things as simple as a as a bandana, some elastic bands, or an old T-shirt. It takes about ten minutes with a sewing machine. So there's lots of different options. I do want to recognize that there are certain members of society that it would be very impossible for them to just happen to get one of these masks. I'm thinking of people like the homeless. I'm thinking of senior citizens, um, people with uh, maybe disabilities that would have a hard time doing this. Mm -hmm. And so we do need to have some system in place for providing masks for these people. Well, and, and certainly I think, look, if the Alberta government's going to go to all the trouble of ordering tens of millions of masks and distributing them, I mean, hopefully they get used, whether we need to make it mandatory, whether it just kind of becomes the norm or the expectation. I know in, in some situations, a lot of businesses are saying that, look, if you want to come in, you got to wear a mask. So, I mean, there are different ways, I guess, it can evolve. But as you're saying, I mean, that just kind of taking the blanket approach, or let's make it mandatory, might be the, the simplest way. Yeah, I think the, the easiest thing to do is look at history. Um, I, I don't know if you're old enough to remember when seatbelts were put in. I was like 14 years old, and suddenly we went from not having to wear seatbelts to having to wear seatbelts. And we know from, from data that that uh, acceptance of that went from about 25% of people using seatbelts before to about 70% afterwards, and it's only grown since then. It was really that need for the government to mandate that made the population change its, its behavior. And we've seen that over and over again uh, with public health interventions like bike helmets, with ski helmets. Um, and so I, I really think that saying you really, really need to think about wearing a, a mask is, is probably not going to be enough. In order to get that, that population level above 60%, we're really going to need the government to say, this is really important. There's also the concern, though, when it comes to, 
you know, how to wear a mask properly, how to take it off properly, what to do with it once it's been taken off, whether you can just keep wearing it over and over or whether it needs to be thrown out. Um, you know, I think there's, there's still a lot of uncertainty around a lot of that. So how do we address that side of it? There's a really important, once these stronger recommendations are coming forward, there's a really important need for public health to put in education programs to help support the population. But I'd point out that, you know, most of our population do really complicated things like drive cars. You know, we've taught people how to drive cars. I'm sure we can teach them how to wear masks. And I'm sure we're, we're, we're no less intelligent than those folks in, in, say, the Czech Republic or Germany or South Korea. And so we can be taught how to do this properly. All right. Well, people can read your op-ed. As mentioned, it's up at CalgaryHerald.com. Joe, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. I appreciate your interest. Take care. Dr. Joe Vipond is an emergency room physician uh, in Calgary and a clinical assistant professor at the University of Calgary. Uh, Dr. Vipond and Dr. Uh, Avinash uh, Sinha uh, co-wrote this piece for the Calgary Herald. I think it was also in the Montreal Gazette on why masks should be uh, mandatory. So it's an interesting question. Because there, there's, there's particular value in, in having mask wearing at a certain level to really help keep uh, the, the virus at bay. And if you can keep that R0 below 1, you're, you're going to see a decline in cases. So 60% of the population are wearing masks. There's a lot of value in that. Now, I think, A, maybe people are a little cynical about all of this because that's not what we were being told a couple of months ago by public health officials. And so the messaging has not been consistent. I think people are going to bristle at the idea that we've done something wrong. We've committed some kind of an offense by not wearing a mask. That it's just such a, a dramatic change from where we were a few months ago. I remember having conversations about whether it should be illegal to wear a mask in public, to hide your face in public. Now it's kind of gone in the opposite direction. Are you going to get in trouble for not covering your face? Not every circumstance warrants it, obviously. And, and certainly you can envision somewhere it makes sense. Maybe it should be mandatory for anybody using Calgary Transit. Or once we have other circumstances where people are in more crowded public areas. But I guess if grocery stores are busy or shopping malls are reopened, maybe we're already at that point. I think there's a question of having access to a mask or masks, plural. And is that something that, that we all have an onus to, to do, to buy, to spend our own money? Should those be provided to us? And is the enforcement. I mean, it's, that, that's, that's going to be tricky. And especially if you get a situation where, you know, say it is a homeless person or a low-income person. We're going to give that person like a thousand dollar fine because they didn't wear a mask. So uh, there's some 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 minefields here, I think. But uh, the basic point about the value of that in keeping the disease in check is is well taken. And I think as we want to keep moving forward uh, through these various stages of the relaunch strategy and try to regain a sense of normalcy, at least until we get a vaccine. I mean, it makes sense that this would be a part of it. There is that other aspect, though, that maybe people are uneasy seeing all these masks, that somehow it's a reminder that we're in this situation, or that somehow it conveys that this is serious and scary, or that somehow not wearing a mask and you're defiant uh, against this virus or defiant against public health advice. 
or the idea that somehow it's weakness or cowardice to wear a mask. Again, it's about protecting others. It's not about you being protected necessarily. It's about protecting others from you. You don't know if you have it, if you're asymptomatic. And should that person be accountable? Saying, look, I'm fine. I don't need to wear a mask. And if you are asymptomatic and you do spread it to others, do you bear some responsibility for that? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.